0: So uh, welcome to our uh, final panel before our uh, roundtable discussion, um, which we hope you'll all be able to stay for. Um, So my name is Johanna Contario. I'm an all reluctant internationalist um, and now a lecturer in modern European and international history in Flinders University in Australia. Um, and it's my great pleasure to introduce this panel on languages of socialist internationalism. Um, our first speaker is our very own Dora Varga, who is a lecturer in medical humanities based in the history department of the University of Exeter. Her work focuses on questions of global health and biomedical research in the Cold War era, using the co- locality of Eastern Europe as a starting point. She's published on vaccination policies in Eastern Europe, Cold War politics of polio epidemics, Epidemic Narratives in Current Public Health Policies and the Care of Disabled Children in Communist Hungary. Her recently completed and submitted uh, book manuscript (laughs) entitled (laughs) Polio Across the Iron Curtain, Hungary's Cold War with an Epidemic is under contract with Cambridge University Press. And Dora is also co-editor of the journal Social History of Medicine and a member of the WHO Collaborating Center Cultural Context of Health at the University of Exeter. So the title of her paper, which is drawn from her new project on the World Health Organization in the Eastern Bloc, is Languages of Health and Disease, Hungary and the Beginnings of Socialist International Health in the 1950s. Thank you. Um, and I have to apologize in
1: advance because this will be a bit rambling. It's very—it's a new thing that I started working on. And um, it doesn't help that the Hungarian government just closed the archives indefinitely. So. Um, I'm sure whatever questions will come up, I might be able to answer them in maybe 10, 15 years when they reopen again. we'll see. Um, but anyway, I, you know, there's, um, there's some stuff that I've started thinking about and maybe I, I really look forward to um, your comments. So the establishment of the World Health Organization um, coincided with the emergence of the Cold War and the split of Europe along um, political lines. The years of the communist takeover in Eastern European governments uh, coincided with the ratification um, of the constitution of the WHO and the first um, World Health Assembly. And uh, this created um, uh, issues um, obviously um, for Eastern a lot of Eastern European governments. And my case study is is Hungary. Um, That's my go-to place. Um, And uh, for instance, in in Hungary, there, there was this confusion of where to send the, the ratification. Where to, you know, they signed it. They, they said, yes, we're in. The, and and uh, you know, is it the health ministry? Is it the foreign ministry? Do they send it to the UN? Do they send it to the WHO, which is not really existing yet? So, so um, it kind of got lost. And, uh, and it's quite possible that there was this you know, time when it's unclear who's going to sign it, because there's such big changes in the government. And, and it also um, because the, so it also showed the stakes in, in universal membership versus apply, you know uh, membership where you have to apply um, that you that not everybody became automatically part of the of the WHO or the UN um, had really real stakes. Of course, we've talked about East Germany, but. But even just the joining process, you know, Hungary missed out on the first World Health Assembly, for instance. They were there as observers, but they couldn't, you know, participate um, uh, properly. Um, and then, um, not long after um, this very idealistic project um, started up, um, the Soviet Union, along with the rest of Eastern Europe, left. Um, and this is very little talked about um, in the history of the WHO, which tends to be something very grand and, and beautiful, and it is, you know, in many ways, um, uh, but, uh, but this is sort of an embarrassing um, episode because as soon as they start, you know, it falls apart um, and, and they don't like to remember that. And there's basically no history written on that. Everybody takes it for granted that, well, the Soviet Union left for political reasons and Eastern Europe just went with them. Uh, and it's sort of unquestioned. And uh, um, and then if you if but if you look at it um, more closely, uh, Eastern European states linger on a bit more. They do participate in the Second World Health Assembly, and there is this real trying to 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 you know do work to to really convince the rest of the the states and the WHO you know leadership that that uh, that that what they're representing is valid and and they what their problems are are, are um, should be acknowledged and it they have really like valid <laughs> issues um uh, they're extremely devastated um, you know, uh, 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 infrastructure and and not no access to medication um, and medicines um, and uh, and um, uh, equipment medical equipment and the WHO follows the line of this, you know, technical assistant of knowledge. They're going to send um, lecturers, and this seems very offensive. You know, like why are you sending us lecturers? We don't have, you know, beds to put our, you know, our patients in. Um, and uh, we can just read about that in an article. <laughs> it's not, not, you know, it's also this kind of um, a, a mismatch between between. Um, um, uh, between uh, uh, the, the conception of, of expertise where it lies and uh but but uh, more importantly, it seems to be that um that uh, that there is a difference in and this is a a time when everybody's trying to figure out and it 's being renegotiated what international health is and what it should be and uh and I, I think, um, and I'm not going to go into it in great detail because Jessica's is sitting um, right here. Maybe we can get back to that um, uh, to the, in the, in the roundtable discussion, but, um, but it's, we, and we've talked about it a lot um, of how this WHO um, and ideas and expectations of what international health should do uh, comes a lot from the UNRWA. Um, and and uh, and she talks about this language of uh, of entitlement and obligation um, that, that is being pushed against um, by by countries like the like the um, uh, don't, uh, like the United States. So this this language of rights, entitlement, and obligation um, towards health. So there there is this kind of mismatch. And then um, obviously there are World politics in play, but that's not all of it. Um, and uh, and so the the these the whole block leaves and um, and they leave individually um, and in, in slightly different times. Uh, the the issue is that uh, this. Uh, Um, weird structure of the WHO comes back because you cannot leave the WHO. There's no (laughs) Article 50 to trigger. There's nothing, you know, you you cannot, once you're in, you're in. And that's, there's no provision in the constitution of how you can actually, you know, go out. Um, So there's this um, uh, uh, deliberation about this and they decide that well, these will become inactive members. And uh, the inactive members, um, basically the, the, the blog, Considers so that they left, they want to uh, leave. They're they're um, uh, they're they become inactive members um, legally, but it, this doesn't mean that international health stops in, in Eastern Europe. Um, it doesn't mean that they don't participate across, you know, with with Western Europe, with the United States, and with other parts of the world um, in exchanges and collaborations mm-hmm. and so on. But it does bring a, a, a turning point um, in, in socialist internationalism um, because it does propel these states to, to actually do, you know, build their own um, system. And that system is built on bilateral agreements between the, the, the countries of um, Eastern Europe. And they're negotiated individually, again, and they, they tend to, to, to happen in the... Well, by the time they're signed and you know go through the whole bureaucracy, it's it's like the mid to late fifties, um, and uh, and and these um, uh, these um, the goals of these uh, uh, these documents are extensive. They're um, Parties would share expertise in disease prevention and treatment, um, epidemic disease control, um, and epidemic reporting, to come back to Heidi's um, uh, point, experiences with new pharmaceuticals. um, They exchange statistical methods and planning strategies, they provide medical treatment for patients in case it's unavailable in their home countries, um, and they uh, launch exchange programs for. For researchers and health professionals, so they the the aim is to learn from each other's you know public health and healthcare practice, but also to 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 collaborate in research, and um, and these were, you know, these are sort of shells and that that make things possible. They don't do these these agreements don't do anything um, by themselves, and um, and there is uh, some of these seem like formalities, and there's a lot of talk of, of uh, how to do this, um, but uh, there, there are significant, um, it, it does really start happening, and the Hungarian government, um, the health ministry, keeps record of patients who went um, uh, to friendly countries for treatment, research plans, conference reports, journal copies that they send to each other, so they, they keep a list of um, publications that they circulate among each other, Um, and uh, uh, to to, to the health ministries, and then they are supposed to distribute that in some way. And uh, they they took regular part in um, uh, study trips and and training. And this collaboration was not always flawless, um, and not all the participants were completely enthusiastic about it. Um, And uh, uh, so as to say, they they gave into the socialist internationalism a bit reluctantly. it was um, uh, one of the one of the reports from 1960 to trip to um, Czechoslovakia. Um, uh, remarked that while some colleagues were welcoming and excited by the w- visit, the majority of Czechoslovak researchers were indifferent and could not be less interested in what was going on in Hungary. Like they just couldn't care. Um, but but others, you know, th- there were other um, more positive um, encounters as well, and. Um, they and 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 uh, there was a, a big push um, from uh, from the top down to 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 uh, foster these collaborations. Um, Czechoslovak and Soviet ministers in 1960 expressed their unhappiness with the amount of collaboration uh, among medical institutes and the lack of sufficient results. So they were they were um, pushing uh, it, and 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 this is good for me because. It, it created a lot of reports of look what we've been doing and, and a lot of nice lists of people and places and institutions. But mat- the majority of the, of the collaborations came from below. They were, they were based on personal um, connections and, and people knowing each other um, personally, not from an institutional level. So they were, they were from the bottom up. And, um, uh, and, they, they, but, and, and this was acknowledged and in the ministry, you can find this, um, this deliberation that we need to do something with this. They're coming, they're very ad hoc. They're not you know, systematic. It's, it's based on personal relationships. It should be based on an institutional um, collaboration. And, uh, but um, uh, so I, I started thinking about um, uh, you know, where these people went, who they uh, collaborated with, with. And you know, Hungary is, is not, not a Slavic language. It's quite, you know, you always think about you know, So relatively few people think it. So it's, you know, what, what language did they use to communicate with all these people? <laughs> um, and uh, they, um, so Hungarians were, were mostly going to, to the Soviet Union, Romania, Poland, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, even to China. And they were in contact with um, Chinese colleagues. But their ties were the strongest with Czechoslovakia and East Germany. And um, and uh, so I, I tried to think about why that is. And um, when it comes to languages, the medical internationalism of these, of these physicians and researchers was uh, as international as it can be. A Hungarian physician, in his report uh, on a two-week study trip to Czechoslovakia, details his interaction with Czechoslovak colleagues. And just to give you an idea of you know, what a trip looked like um, um, he, said, he says that I carried out studies in Prague, 11 days, Brno, one day, and Bratislava, two days. In the three cities, I visited two medical training institutions, a healthcare, institutional, um, de- healthcare um, organization department of four universities, many further institutions, regional, polyclinic, village district medical office, county public health and epidemiology institute, County Medical Organization Department, the Statistics Department of the Health Ministry, County Pediatric Clinic, the Health Ministry's Women and Children Research Institute, Health Information uh, Research Institute. Everywhere, I met with the head or deputy of the institution and talked to several colleagues. They received me with kindness, were ready to answer my questions in a detailed manner. My work hours lasted from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m., and then in the afternoon from 2 to 5.30 contact language was Russian half the time, and the other half German, occasionally French and English, and in Bratislava in some places they knew uh, Hungarian. So, and this is one person. Um, uh, and it's, uh, so the, the geographic concentration and extent of scientific collaboration points to continuous pre-World War II um, relationships and language use. German remained the preferred um, lingua franca in biomedical research in Central Europe for. Um, well, well into the, in the mid 20th century, um, explaining intensive collaboration with Czechoslovakia and East Germany, but it seems to have been the preferred language with Romania as well. And it's very difficult to actually get information of what language these people, you know, corresponded in or or talked with each other because it's not addressed at all in these sources. Um, it's very rare to get this. The, and these are the languages I used. You know, um, uh, there is. A handwritten note about all these people going to Romania, and there's there's a, there's a, a list of the the, the language that they they can speak, and and for instance that reveals that out of the the about 28 people, German was the one, some some French and and English, no Russian at all, and and, and this is the 1950s, so so it would you know explain that, um, but uh, but there but but. You know, Russian, of course, comes in um, with a lot of medical publications. You would have a Russian abstract in the, in the end of the paper. Um, but Hungarian articles, medical articles, are published in English as well. There's an English language journal of, of, uh, of uh, uh, Hungarian microbiology, for instance. Um, there is health propaganda books um, published in Hungarian. In Romania, in the 50s. Um, so that's uh, uh, that's also, you know, uh, happening. These um, uh, so these these, these the, the way that languages um, map on the region are, you know, are not particular to the borders, and they're not has, have nothing to do with socialism. But but these collaborations through these older ties are are happening with the push of this um, socialist internationalism. And uh, and I think that and some some of the, the most striking examples of, of this, this this really Austro-Hungarian these are the children of the Austro-Hungarian Empire these are the last you know generation that that were either born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire or were were raised by people who lived their whole life in um, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire and so a lot of them are multilingual um, as a from the outset and uh, and and then you know that. There's this one of my favorite stories about this is um, in in polio treatment. um, There's uh, something called the Kenny method, which was pioneered by um, a nurse, um, an Australian nurse, and was very controversial in the 1940s. She was not coming from you know coming from the outside, basically um, intuitively, um, successfully treating polio patients, and her method of treatment um, spread around the world, and uh, the way it. Made it into Hungary was that um, uh, Sister Kenny um, uh, had ties to Czechoslovakia, and she she was um, uh, she she visited Czechoslovakia. She had a clinic um, there, a training center there, um, uh, which which was uh, sort of uh, went back to the, the uh, to, to the late forties. Um, and, uh, and the way it got to Hungary was that um, a Hungarian uh, pediatrician was walking on the street in, in uh, Bratislava uh, uh, or in Prague, I, I, I forget, um, uh, which and he told me that he, he looked in the window shop and he saw this book in Czech and, and he was already treating polio patients so he, was, uh, he got very interested and because he was a Slovak-Hungarian multi- bilingual person. He was he, he considered himself Hungarian, but of course he, you know, spoke Slovak, so he could understand the Czech um, translation. He bought it, and he was the one who, who basically rolled it out to Hungary. So these um, these were very very uh, worked in very interesting ways. And then, in the, by 1960, you have a report, for instance, and, and and you know most of my sources come from the late 50s, early 60s. And these show that there is, you know, Russian, but but really the what what uh, 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 the, the collaboration, the scientific collaboration, is really an austro Hungarian um, empire um, uh, uh, structure. Um, but by 1960, um, it, it starts to, to break down slightly, um, and I think we can, you know, see the limits of this continuity. Um, uh, there's a report uh, or a letter from the, from the head of Department of Surgery at the University of Debrecen um, which is in the eastern part of Hungary, um, he laments that um, nobody from this institution can apply to this new fellowship that the Hungarian Academ- Academy of Sciences um, advertised to, with, for research collaboration and research visits to Romania because only junior researchers can apply and they don't have the linguistic skills. The head, heads of departments and senior um, people have the linguistic skills, but they can't go um, because they have obligations and, and so on. So you can see that this, this, this is starting to come in, that, but it takes that long. You, know, you, can, you can, at least uh, in, in, in this case, in scientific collaboration, it shows that it takes a good 50 years, um, at least, you know, the whole generational shift. For the, for the Austro-Hungarian Empire to sort of phase out. And, and, uh, and, and, and it, interestingly, it gives this push for, for socialist internationalism, which I mean, it just, it just makes possible a really meaningful collaboration between socialist countries. Um, so so it, it, it sort of feeds into this, this other um, political structure and collaboration. And this is um, where I'm at right now. So thank you. <laughs>
0: Uh, Our next speaker is Elidor Myohui. Elidor is assistant professor of history at Hunter College of the City University of New York. Uh, He was a visiting fellow to our project in the summer of 2014 and has since then been a regular visitor to London and to our project. He has published widely on questions of the socialist world and I'm very happy to uh, share that his book, uh, From Stalin to Mao, Albania and the Socialist World, Will be published by Cornell University Press this year. The title of his paper today <laughs> is The Power of Russian Ideology, Literacy, and Socialist Internationalism Before and After the <laughs> Sino Soviet Split. Thank you.
2: Um, so I'm I'm very as as uh, Johanna mentioned I've been coming here every year ever since I was the first fellow in 2014, and I think the reason has become apparent uh, why I, I've been coming every year um, to this program. But it's just a testament to the vision, uh, uh, to Jessica's vision, and and to all the other fellows, and and to the to the kinds of richness that that this um, initiative has had, and the fact that. Uh, even though it might be ending, a lot of these books that will be published will kind of... So, so we're, we're going to have an afterlife to the reluctant internationalism, and it's going to sort of be evident in the years to come. So having said that, I don't have a paper. Uh, I don't have an actual formal uh, presentation with an introduction, and then evidence, and then a conclusion. <laughs> so you'll just going of... But you know, when, when your book comes out in four months, you really do not want to work on anything else. So instead what I'm going to do is I'm just going to offer a few observations drawn from the work that went into the, the, the book and particularly when this issue of language came up. And so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna share a few uh, of these of these ideas and the, and the first, and, and I will apologize for two things. The first thing is that I'm going to start with a couple of cliches. And then the second thing is that I'm gonna have an autobiographical note. Um, the, so the first cliche is that uh, I wanted to sort of start with this idea of languages as sort of geopolitical realities. They pop up in places where we don't expect them and sometimes at times when, when we don't expect them. And, and so my aim as I, in, research, in doing this research over the past few years was to analyze socialism as this kind of globalizing system and one in which sort of not only people and ideas and artifacts but also language kept popping up uh, across a vast geographical uh, mass. Uh, how do countries from sort of the Mediterranean coast, all the way to Eurasia, across this very vast span, countries that don't necessarily have a lot in common with, um, from the Balkans, to the Baltic, to Siberia, to East Asia, how does that work? How do do contexts at that scale work, particularly when this problem of language cannot be taken for granted? And then the second, cliche that I was going to start with, is that uh, languages are difficult, and they require time and patience and money, uh, and, and and it is a very frustrating process. And so one of the aims in doing this kind of research for the book that I had was to restore a sense of wonder about socialism as a transnational uh, phenomenon, uh, which is not exactly easy to do when you grow up uh, in a place where actually socialism was and continues to be seen as a calamity uh, and, and its collapse as a sort of a major tragedy um, and so the And here's where the autobiographical note is going to come in um, What do I mean by that? So I there is absolutely nothing um, Obvious about Russian popping up after World War two uh, in a place like this um, in part because as, as Dora mentioned, this non-Slavic, right non-Slavic uh, uh, component, but not only that, for a country like this, the fact that Albanian is only spoken by Albanians, it's a cornerstone of national identity. So when, when your language is the one thing that constitutes your national identity, the fact that then you see Russian being propagated throughout the '50s, and made actually mandatory in schools, like that's, a, that's a weird thing, that's a strange thing, and it's, a, and, it's, and, and it's something that needs to be explained. And so where does the autobiographical come in? So my parents' generation, who came of age in the 50s, had to learn Russian, right? This, this was the time in which it was made mandatory. But my generation, and I'm right on the cusp of the millennial, I could go either way, on the millennial, <laughs> on the millennial divide, uh, but we didn't. Right? And there were very specific reasons why we didn't. By that point, Albania had separated itself from the Soviet Union, had embarked on this kind of very autonomous um, path within international socialism. And by that point, uh, school children were learning French for the most part. Uh, by the 80s, it, it, German was also becoming uh, very, very, very popular, but it wasn't Russian. So after my first year in graduate school, when I, my research moved from uh, Italian, Albanian, fascist 1930s stuff towards Cold War uh, era and it became obvious that I needed to learn how to read Russian, uh, I was shipped to Middlebury College where they have a total immersion language program during the summer where you start from scratch and you're not allowed to speak anything but Russian. Where I got a name called Yuri. And then and for the first week at Middlebury, I couldn't say anything, so I was just pointing to things. Because I didn't, you're not allowed to use anything but Russian. So my parents had to learn Russian because it was the homeland of socialism, and I learned Russian in one of the homelands of capitalism. And that was the irony in all of this, in how what I mean when I say that these languages pop up in unexpected places, and that and that it can be a very kind of, there's a strangeness quality to this. Um, All right, so the first point that I'm gonna make is that after World War II, and particularly in this early period of the Cold War, Russian was a kind of necessity, and particularly for a small country like Albania. uh, Small countries oftentimes have to learn the languages of the bigger countries, particularly those that are geographically next to them, and it's not often optional. Uh, it's not like uh, it's not like this is this is something that they just ask nicely. Would you please learn Italian? No. In 1939, the Italians make sure that Albanians are part of their imperial uh, uh, Mediterranean project. By, uh, they occupy the country, and Italian is institutionalized. And and so um, the 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 uh, that that is one component of this. Of of uh, that, I will return to it. Um, and. After World War II, as it becomes increasingly necessary for Albania to kind of align itself with another greater power, initially it's Yugoslavia, which is right across the border in Serbo-Croatian, becomes mandatory in schools. And then there's a break with Yugoslavia in 1948, and that's when then it becomes clear that Russian is the way to go. And, and that the Soviet Union could be that patron um, uh, to, to basically replace uh, this sort of much more weaker regional Power, which was Yugoslavia. So, but the other problem, of course, is this is a largely literate country. Uh, and so uh, it, it's a country in which the majority of the population cannot read or write in the 1940s. Um, you have this kind of regional anti-fascist legacy. Uh, and you have the split in 1948 between Stalin and Tito. So there's 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 quite a bit going on there, and the question essentially remains is. What does Russia mean in this context? Well, it means access. Uh, it means uh, not only security and for a country that's, let me go back to that very briefly, and for a country that feels geographically trapped, right? Because there's, there's sort of, there's the former occupying force on one side of the, of, the, uh, of the Adriatic. There is Greece where the hopes of a successful civil war faltered and, and Greece ends up on the other side of the divide. And after 48, this is enemy territory as well. Uh, and for Albania, this, there was a specific, specific reason why this was enemy territory, because you know, Tito had his own visions about the Balkan Socialist uh, Federation. And so for a country that feels geographically trapped in this very, very peculiar uh, corner of Europe, uh, it, Russian is, is not just a matter, it's not, it, it's not just an optional thing, it's, like, it's the one bridge that you could have. Uh, to to, to, to the rest of the communist world. All right, so uh, how do you do that? How do you spread a language in a place where extremely high illiteracy rates and um, a peasant country, a predominantly peasant country that is trying to build socialism with peasants, with illiterate peasants, uh, and where you don't really have a a well-established centralized school network that is... um, uh, that is uh, well-maintained and, and, and that reaches across all of the country. So, well, of course they have to publish books. I mean, they have to, they have to, they have to do mandatory courses, they have to do evening courses, they have to educate the workers after their shifts. Uh, at the same time that these workers are being sort of funneled into literacy courses in Albanian, they're also sort of being funneled into these uh, uh, training sessions uh, for Russian. And this is this first kind of, it took until 1951 uh, to get the Soviets to pr- print and translate and, and, and disseminate the first um, language uh, method, and this is the only surviving copy in the United States. Is it Ohio State? <laughs> uh, it is very hard to get that in Albania, uh, but uh, uh, sometimes you have to kind of, um, you know, um, hunt these things down uh, wherever wherever they are. And so, uh, what's interesting about this is, of course, that. Uh, the, you know, there's an attempt here, I mean, there is an understanding that these are illiterate, that, that many of these individuals, and so there's an attempt to use images, there's an attempt to kind of uh, really sort of expose one, of course, to the basics and to the grammar and then to have some exercises down there, but also to kind of visually uh, depict, in this case, the two, obviously, two major um, Soviet sources. Uh, Pravda and Trud, and then you, so that you can kind of, so just by looking at that and just by kind of reading that and having it translated, that would sort of mentally uh, make these things familiar uh, to, to Albanians as well. Um, Russian is also an opportunity to, to, to make a name for yourself, right? So uh, it is not a coincidence that the party leader's wife uh, takes the lead on this she is the con she's in charge of uh, agitation and propaganda at the Central Committee it's a family affair and uh, which in uh, it used to be history but not no longer um, the fact that power can be distributed in, uh, within a family um, and, the, and and she is the one that is in charge of all of this so she's the one that's kind of trying to disseminate the books and, and, and trying to see how edgy, edgy prop works and has to be in communication with the periphery and all the information that's channel to the center. This is not an easy thing to do and, it, and, it's, and it's very easy to sort of go to the archive and find this evidence and kind of look at this and say, oh my god, and it was failing here and it he was failing there and it was not working here and it he was not working there. But they're essentially, they're sort of building a state as they're trying to do this. So they're trying to create a centralization system. Uh, as, they're, as they're trying to sort of establish Russian as well. And so, uh, w- when you look at the, on, the, on the Soviet side, I mean, the, Russia, the Soviet uh, ambassador in Tirana, uh, he's very unhappy about the extent to which Russian is spoken in, in the country. And he says, this, you know, already in the second half of the 1950s, where this has, had been going on for a few years, he says, it has failed, right? Uh, within the Central Committee, uh, only few people are able to actually speak in Russian. Uh, Russian newspapers. Only a few people within the Central Committee get them regularly, uh, and so again, it's 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 a, when you look at both sides, there there is uh, there there is quite a bit of um, back and forth about how to improve things, how to how to spread uh, Russian much more effectively. But this pointed to me, so looking beyond the kind of success or failure, that sure, but that was only one aspect. Uh, uh, uh. And we might want to think about language beyond the textual and beyond the sort of comprehension uh, aspect of it, at non-textual verbs of communication. And so, in this case, Soviet films uh, that are continuously entering the country in the 1950s, and they're using this, these, um, you know, this traveling. The Albanian word for it is absolutely brilliant. It's called auto propaganda. <laughs> that, that's what they call it, and it's even better than the Russian word. Um, because, and so it's just, it just, it's self-explanatory, right? I mean, it's just, that, that's why it's so good. But basically, they're showing the Soviet films. They're kind of going to villages, they're going to the mountains, to the highlands. Some of these folks have never seen a movie before, uh, particularly in the very, very isolated areas of the country. And they're not translated these movies. They don't have captions. <laughs> so there's somebody, right, before the showing, who has, delivers a speech and, and will explain the plot and will explain the kind of, I mean, if it's a World War II movie, it doesn't necessarily take a genius to kind of figure out what's going on. Uh, and so this is why they really, really go for World War II movies, you know, they go for fascists and uh, Nazis and the Soviets, the Battle of Stalingrad is a huge hit. But so there's, there's this kind of non-textual, non, because they get it, they get it, that it's going to be very challenging if we wait for years until people can learn Russian and read Russian um, and so it's going to it's going to have to we're going to have to be much more creative than that and so a reminder that language comprehension also works at levels just because some people were not able to read Pravda or even get it get get their hands on Pravda uh, it was possible to understand parts of the Soviet uh, uh, dimension uh, and not other parts and, and and that 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 you know that could still be powerful. Uh, the inaccessibility of the totality of Soviet, you know, the fact that the Soviet Union had been going on for decades and it had created not only, you know, works of literature and and, and, and films and and by now an extensive corpus of, of of cultural artifacts, but the fact that, you know, there was an awareness in nineteen fifty Albania that it would take years to become familiarized with all of this. You couldn't do it in one year anyway. Even if you tried, no matter how much propaganda you threw uh, at Albanians, and so there was a, there was a kind of implicit understanding that this was a long-term project. This was not going to be done overnight. Um, Russian is a form of capital, so I, I mentioned that it, it can be, uh, it it could you could make a name, and what I mean by that is basically that these these people that were doing the translating these these methods, these language methods, and eventually the films, they eventually films were, um, were—you were, were, uh, know they would, they, would, they would have the captions, were, were young people, uh, uh, not in terms necessarily of age, because some of them fought in the war, and so they missed their college years, but then they had to catch <coughs> up, and so they were shipped to the Soviet Union to get those degrees, right? Moscow, Leningrad, um, and so some of these people uh, came back Uh, by the second half of the 1950s. And these were the ones who were kind of using their Soviet credentials uh, uh, as a kind of a form of capital uh, as well. And a particular source that I like to use, because again, in an illiterate country, archival sources are gonna get you only so far. So what I like to do is I I, I, sometimes, particularly in the book, I use fiction and this particular author, and now finally we have this in English, The Twilight of the Eastern Gods, which is fiction. It's a fictionalized account of this author's Moscow days, I call them. It's In the late 50s, he went to the Gorky Institute to study and to become a socialist writer. And so this book is also a great teaching um, source on socialism because basically it's his experience at the Gorky Institute kind of encountering the vastness of socialism. People from all over the world, all the way from the Baltics to Asia to China and Koreans and sort of coming to terms with socialism as something that was both kind of awe-inspiring in in its breadth, and also sort of vastly depressing and and (laughs) ritualistic, because that's what it took to become a good socialist writer. Uh, And so I kind of, so in this idea of sort of the social capital, uh, that's that's what I mean, that that it's possible to to go beyond sort of the state in the archive and to kind of get at these personal dimensions of the the encounters that socialism uh, was about. But the third point is that then, this is all great, but it becomes a geopolitical problem because after desalinization, Albania refuses to desalinize. And so there is, and I'm, I know this is not going to make any sense because I can't go on and on and explain about what happened in 1960, but they broke with the Soviet Union. The two parties had this massive quarrel and they fought very bitterly and, and they broke. Uh, and I promise that I do explain it in the book about why that happened. But I, what I wanted to share here is a part of a transcript, sort of a high level between the Soviet party boss and this guy is the Albanian party boss, um, where they are um, talking about, basically this is kind of like the break, right? This is the breaking point uh, where, they are, where they're discussing, their so their disagreements. <laughs> um, <laughs> Who said that communist history should be boring? I mean, but this is, this, is, this is the part that I always like to point to because there's this moment they're fighting. They've been fighting for months. They, they really disagree, and the Chinese are present, in the background, right? The Chinese have been sort of egging the Albanians. You know, go along, go along with this, go along. And, and, and so the, the Albanians are not kind of crazy to do this. They know that they, they have this, they have China in the background. Uh, but there's this moment in these, in these deliberations where they kind of turn to the translator. And it's as if this, this very dramatic moment, it's a, it's, a, it's a problem in translation. That there is something that has gone very wrong because the Albanians don't understand Russian and, and, and that there's this political, this ideological thing, it's not ideological actually, it's just a technical. There's a glitch. Uh, and Kadere, who's the guy that I, whose fiction I use, has, has a whole book about that translator, right? He sort of, his fictionalizes these translators, the world collapsing for him right at that moment, right? When he's all of a <laughs> suddenly thinking about the possibility that he has caused this great schism <laughs> in world socialism and that, you know, what happens to him when he goes, goes home? <laughs> um, but uh, so I, I point to this to say that the split, you know, we study the split as a political thing and it is. It's a high level uh, geopolitical fracture, but it's also a social, it's an economic, and it's a cultural story. It's a reordering of the world for these people. Uh, reordering of socialism now without the Soviets at the helm. And sort of detaching the predominance of Russian from the story that you can now have socialism in a different key, that you, you, that, you, that you can re-articulate it and that it is not necessary. Now, for a few years, they still are doing everything in Russian. Right? They're talking to the Chinese in Russian. They're double translating it. They're, all their technical agreements are, are, are done in Russian. So Russian remains a lingua franca even after the split for a while. But what you see more and more and more in the seventies and eighties is, you know, an openness to French, an openness to Italian, an understanding that it it now realignment means that we need to disassociate the preeminence of the Soviet uh, example within socialism from socialism itself. They do not adopt Chinese. They do not make Chinese mandatory do not have those kinds of delusions that all of a sudden you know we're going to have everybody speak Chinese Um, and so I can say a little bit more about why that is uh, uh, but very broadly to conclude uh, the split essentially sort of makes this it it creates this geopolitical problem where on the one hand you kind of not have to continue doing the work of imagining socialism as something more than just national but without reinforcing the Soviet blueprint Uh, It allows to see, and it allows us, I think, to see Russian as connecting, in many ways, uh, 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 but also as um, uh, allowing individuals to connect against the Soviets, um, uh, against Soviet interests in the world, and and allowing communication that bypasses Moscow uh, in a very very, uh, important way. And finally, socialism was obviously not borderless, Uh, though it had once promised a borderless uh, future. uh, But the borders that existed were more complicated than national ones. And so one of the points that I make in the book is that there are ideological borders. And crossing ideological borders is not the same thing as crossing national ones. It, it It would probably cost your life to try and cross from Albania to Yugoslavia at any point during the Cold War. But crossing that ideological border of, of revisionism, whatever, whatever that was, right? Sort of going along with Khrushchev's ideas about what it meant to reform socialism, that was risky too, that was a big deal as well. And so a lot of people got in trouble for that, uh, for, for the, for that too. Socialism was kind of a language too. Uh, and it wasn't, it, it, it didn't, I, I think for a lot of people it became apparent now that it was not depending on Russian anymore. That you could learn the language of socialism uh, without necessarily wedding yourself to this Uh, to to this Russian-Soviet blueprint for doing it. All right, so I'll stop there because I know I'm out of time. And then um, I'm happy to offer more uh, answers to your questions later. Thank you.
0: Thank you to all of our panelists and to Rachel for this excellent paper, um, these uh, um, excellent papers. Uh, so, we now have about uh, half hour to 45 minutes for, for discussion. Um, and so, I open up the floor to questions. Okay. Um,
3: eight, eight, I was interested in uh, what Eldor said about how socialism itself is a language, and the ideology of socialism uh, is, a, is a language. Um, and it's, some of your stories about Albanians remind me a little bit of, of uh, uh, Spanish people under uh, Franco, especially Spanish Catholics who go abroad and they meet other Catholics from Poland or Bavaria, or whatever, and they don't share a language but they feel they get on really well because they're both Catholics and they, uh, they know Latin and they, uh, they, the religion, the belief is more important than the language. Um, and I wondered if you touched on China and uh, Maoism and how in Albania uh, you don't necessarily have to, they don't necessarily promote their learning Chinese, and I wondered if, I wondered how that uh, works and how it was justified, so is there a sense that you can be uh, a Maoist without understanding Chinese because you're kind of united to Chinese people through this global uh, shared kind of embrace of Maoism, or is there you know, something else going on there? And I wondered uh, something similar, Rachel, so you're talking about uh, the Soviets promoting Russian as the kind of the language of, of, of global socialism, so you kind of, to be a socialist you have to be... Uh, you have to speak Russian. But is there also a sense in some of these kind of socialist internationalist uh, settings, so youth congresses and conferences and stuff like that, that where people don't speak the same language, it's fine because everyone's a socialist, mm-hmm. so everyone understands each other? Anyway. I
4: think just an observation Eddie. for anyone who has flown out of the Medvedeva airport, can <laughs> <laughs> uh, appreciate that Russia re- Russian remains the lingua franca of like the post-soviet empire, and you see all these like Tajiks, Uzbeks, Georgians, um, odd the foreign, like all sorts of foreigners essentially are coming together and communicating in Russian logic when they're very interesting and uh, kind of uh, seldom acknowledge until these excellent papers. <coughs> so I, I was wondering kind of, um, I have like one question that goes both to Rachel and Edor and another one for all three of you. First of all, um, I, I was struck, and you both gave us a glimpse of the conduits of the Russian language, right? And it's very interesting to me. Who are these people? Uh, what are they in there for? And what, what what sorts of things are they imparting together with the grammar and the Marshall Misha um, kind of. A, how, what is their contribution essentially to that sense that what russian gives you and what kind of promises and holds so i think it's a very interesting it's, it's, i'm very intrigued by these people that was wondering if you can say more about them and one question to australia was it was just so interesting because dora has it's like in, like in dora's socialism is completely cold block right you have all these kind of people who speak there are all sorts of different languages going on, and somehow they find a mutual way. And then we have these two kind of other sides where Russian is the lingua franca. And so I'm wondering was a lingua franca essential for uh, the success of socialism as a global project? Um, and, and so I'm wondering concerning what your answer to that would be. And so, if not Russian, what would that language be?
5: Um, following up actually on, on the first question uh, to any of us sort of Albanian Chinese conversations and of socialism as a as a form of, of a global, potentially global language um, do they actually I mean the, during the period when he still sort of communicate through Russian translation do they uh, do, did you come across any instance that they actually misunderstand what socialism in China means uh, in the Breaking Forward after, and what the Albanians are talking about, because they have to go through Russian, and some, at least the way I understand it, some Chinese terms don't really translate that nicely, and I, I, uh, that I see that in sort of when they talk to the East Germans in the 80s, for example, I mean, uh, their scholarship on this, that they, they misunderstand each other because the translation goes wrong, uh, and the meaning behind the alleged tr- right translation, correct translation does actually imply ideologically very different things. So is, is that is that happening? And how they, how are they trying to resolve that? And I mean, is, is, it, is that then that the uh, the, the what, what's it called, the foreign language publishing house in Beijing, are they then sort of switching them to translating all of Miles' works into, into Albanian as well? Because I mean, they seem to be extremely good at this very, very early on in the 50s already spreading the word about chinese socialism internationally through having a a very small indeed group of quite good translators uh in other words so so how's that working
6: yeah yeah i really liked a point about the language of socialism because when you read any kind of book that comes out of a of what country the first 20 pages is a sort of ritualistic Marxist language and that doesn't happen in books from the West so there is a sort of ritualized act about what you what you have to put as your sort of preface before you maybe do something subversive so I was wondering if, if that changed at all in Albania with this switch off to 1960 the way in which you have that, that ritualized preface and then the other way I was thinking about this is what about the, the bodily rituals so the ways in which people physically interact, and that's actually a question for, for any one of you, because you talked just about linguistic methods of connection across the socialist bloc. but are there ways in which all of these health people have particular methodologies of interacting? Do you shake your hand? What do you do? Are there any kinds of rituals like that that you have to learn to be a socialist that connects you beyond language as spoken, but language as bodily ritual? So shall we go in the
0: order? Ah, okay. Um,
1: uh, well, very quickly, um, uh, I, I want to come back to, to Tina's point about the airport and the Russian living on, um, uh, because uh, because the, uh, you know you can witness a, a similar generational shift that I was talking about um, in the fifties or late late fifties, early sixties um, uh, in, in language in the late nineties where, um, and this is just a personal anecdote of um, going to, to the Czech Republic um, uh, in my early 20s with you know, friends and, and one of whom spoke Russian really well. And that was lucky because our car was almost towed and there were these two policemen who wanted to you know, impose some great fine that would have taken all our budget for the whole trip. Um, and one was older and one was younger and we didn't speak Czech. Um, and the old police, older policemen, um, could talk, and they could talk in Russian and negot- manage to negotiate the bribe uh, with which they <laughs> got out of the situation. But, but you know that, that sort of the younger policeman was not able to um, uh, speak Russian anymore. But um, I just want to. Uh, it, it's. it's uh, I think. I think there's. There's. You know, maybe the. the the health people are, are, are a bit different in, in in the the kind of things that you, you two are talking about because this is basically doing socialist internationalism without the socialism part much. I mean this is I mean this is that socialism is what propels the whole thing, but but you don't need to have a socialist language or a socialist bodily enactment of any kind um, because it's not that sort of the framework which lets it all happen. And there is, I mean, there is a lot of engagement of, of, which is what I'm trying to figure out now, like there's this particular ideas about health and healthcare and how that should be practiced, what should, you know, um, how that's scientifically and, 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 and uh, in government, how that should look like. But um, but that sort of, somehow that that's, that's I don't know, I'm not trying to figure out, but I think it might be slightly different also because because all the physicians get a free pass for a very long time in terms of ideology, and scientists, um, especially doctors, because there's just a dearth of doctors. There's not enough of them, so they can, you know, they can be Catholic, they can be, they can be super religious, they can be, you know, um, uh, key figures in the in the interwar um, uh, era, um, but they can, you know, they can do their thing, um,
0: so. Just a quick follow-up question what about a private practice how did uh-huh. that function uh-huh. or was that I mean that's something that happens with this sort of socialist model is that the private practice is abolished but is it abolished yeah. in the Hungarian country? No so I was
1: it was interesting because this was a couple of years ago when I was uh, uh, when there were these big conversations that come up and up again in Hungary right now that that you have the state system and then there you have the private unofficial, um, you, you give the envelope to the doctor, um, and it, it becomes so um, uh, part of the system that you, you always pay um, in the end, but it's untaxed, it's, it's under the table there, you, know, you have to find out the rates, and, and it's, there's you know, people who push against it, there are doctors who expect it and will not treat you otherwise, and so there's, whole well, and it's all like, we need to do something about this, we need to battle this. And as this conversation was going on in the newspapers um, currently, I was reading in the 1950s, this is like the Rakoshi era, this is like the Stalinist era. And they're like, oh, and there are these private patients using the public hospitals, and there are this money going on, and this is outrageous. And then, Oh, but we can't do anything about it, and it's just we can't touch this. This is too like this is too complicated. This is too, we even they couldn't do anything about that. Yeah. So um, there was
0: like a flourishing private practice in the 1920s as well in the health resorts. That was yes. a similar
1: situation. And, and it, yeah, yeah, it's just sort of like there's no hope <laughs> to resolve
2: it.
0: So, Uh,
2: is, uh, uh Sure. So the. So there, there are two questions about uh, China and, and Maoism and the Sixties. So I will, if you don't mind, I will sort of group them. And then um, the there is so th- there is a lot of complaining about the Chauvinism of the Soviets with the Chinese, which is which can be a very sort of bonding mechanism. Um, that you know they were they were horrible. They made us do this. They made us do that. And then they required us to do this and do that. And I'm not one to discount the interests of the Soviets in Eastern Europe and their tendency to make people do things that they don't want to do. But in the 1950s, when you actually look and you sort of like delve into the, the sources and you, you, you get it through it from the bottom up, there, there's, there's quite a bit of this in Albania that's self, you know, that, that, that there, there's an interest to adopt a lot of this stuff. And, 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 and a lot of the mechanisms actually are coming from the Albanians. The Albanians are actually begging the Soviets in the 50s for resources and for all this stuff. And there's, an, and, and, and there's a real good reason for it. So then it. But then by the 60s, what you get in your sources and in, in the Sino-Albanian communication is that you know, they were horrible, they were so chauvinistic. Um, that's one element of the Sino-Albanian um, sort of communication. Uh, but, they're, but they're much more, as, as a corollary to that, they're much more careful with the Chinese, right? what to adopt, what not to adopt. And we need to be very mindful, because we've been burned before, that uh, geopolitics is something very tricky and China is very far away. Whereas, particularly in 1968, sends a very clear message to Albania that, you know, tanks might, I mean, at any point, they really panic in 1968 uh, with the Prague Prague invasion. Uh, Mao is the big confounder. Mao just confuses them. <laughs> uh, and particularly during the Cultural Revolution, which is this fascinating episode in, 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 in Maoism as, as, as a phenomenon, as an international phenomenon itself. But it is very, very confusing to make sense of, of, of Mao's, uh, what he's doing. Um, and, that, and yet, that doesn't impede relations to go on and to be very productive. So misunderstanding sometimes is also kind of can be very productive um and and the and, and then the there was this question of which i 'm not it's just it's too big I, it's really a big question there's lingua franca is it necessary for socialism to happen and i don 't know if i um, there are instances i mean we can think about globalization right and sort of the the role of english in in promoting of a certain variant of globalization we can think about it in the context of european integration and 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 whether it has been necessary. But I think the fact, that, the fact that socialism was a language, what I mean by that is it also it allowed agency for small actors in a way that was very... So in 1960, one of the things that the Albanian party boss, who, by the way, is, is a total... I mean, this guy's a dictator. Until 1985, he rules with an iron fist uh, in Albania. But what he does say to Khrushchev, he says, we are powerful because of Marxism-Leninism. Uh, and and, and he, has, he has a point, right? It's, it's, it's precisely the, 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 the ideology that he has understood that it's a currency. Ideology is a form of currency as well. Um, and so, the, okay, so I'll stop there just to allow the Rachel something.
3: Um,
7: yeah, okay, thank you for these interesting questions. Is it okay if people don't actually speak the Russian language? I, and I think, again, I say this project is in its infancy, one of the questions I need to explore is how effective is Russian language teaching? And I mean in Czechoslovakia, it's sort of one of the best cases because it is a Slavic country, although, as I discovered myself, they are the two Czech and and, and Russian are the two Slavic languages the furthest apart. Um, but my sense is actually in a lot of ways it's it's not the teaching of Russian is not very effective. Um, and in you know in in the types of sort of interactions between the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia that I looked at in my first project, you know, especially things like um, tourism, they, they always relied on translators. Um, and one of the really interesting things that I discovered starting the second project, uh, so in the late 50s, all the socialist bloc countries started to hold these conferences for Russian language teachers, they would bring in Soviet teachers, they would bring in teachers from the different Eastern bloc countries, um, and there's one of these, you know conferences in Prague, I think in fifty eight, and they're bringing in these Russian language teachers from other countries, and there's a budget, and it includes a translator. So if they're all Russian language Which teachers, why should they need translators? You know, but <laughs> apparently they do. Um, I, I loved, you know, your point about socialism as an international language um, And I also think, Socialist friendship, which is a little bit different than you know, Marxist-Leninism, is also a sort of different form of an international language um, between the socialist countries that has very particular rituals of you know, delegations and friendship societies and friendship publications and that operates with all of these countries even if the content is a little bit different. But that's something I think we could also think about as, as sort of a, a language. Um, who are the conduits of Russian language? The interesting thing I think is that in the late 40s, early 50s, again, sort of what Eldor was saying, I think a lot of the impetus for learning Russian comes more from the Czechoslovak side than it does from the Soviet side. Just because there's so much fear in the Soviet Union about these contacts with anyone abroad at that time and you know, resources after the end of the war, etc. cetera. So most of the teachers in Czechoslovakia are Czechs or Slovaks, um, or sometimes they are the, the children of white Russian emigres um, you know, who grew up from the 20s, who grew up speaking Russian and speak it as a native language. Um, there's a bit of a shift in the 60s when the Soviet government starts to actually send Russian language teachers all over the world um, and send some to Czechoslovakia and hold special language camps for children. And then I, I think you see some of these teachers are more actual Soviet citizens. But in the earlier phases, they are definitely Czech and Slovak. Um, and I also don't know—is a lingua franca necessary? Good question.
0: <laughs>
8: question for Rachel uh, related to displacing German—the first phase of the process—and I love the fact that you've kind of narrativized this is a multi-step process that it wasn't just all one cohesive trajectory—and I think the displacing German part is fraud, of course. It's not just about the ouster of the memory of the Nazi occupations; also about the ouster of the Germans in Czechoslovakia. And that makes it a much more complicated proposition because there are areas that are 80% yeah. to 90% today in German or German-speaking, and there are islands in the middle, and there is the periphery. So does that, is there a mention in the programmatic discussions of language, is there a mention of those areas is something that's kind of like a separate subset. In the discussion of how to teach Russian in all of or the borderlands in those isle, former islands, uh, with very few German residents after the expulsion, 45 48, and thereafter, are they treated differently? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, I wonder if looking at Zudinian German sources would be helpful in a way. I mean, it's like a notion. if <laughs> I <laughs> it, it's an ocean of something, I mean, I, I've read a lot of those, and it seems to me that they really exploit the role of language, uh, which is relevant to your kind of narrative as a form of orientation, reorientation, and disorientation. They publish a lot of these guidebooks to post-war Eastern German areas where they address the role of the appearance of the Russian language, specifically in road signs, mm-hmm. in what the locals speak, and what the guests in places like uh, Karl Bavaria, you know, the, the uh, spas uh, speak, and they really zoom in on germ- uh, on Russian as a very disorienting um, in the landscape, which is predictably so. But I wonder if there is a kind of a or exchange going on there. And I had another question for Rachel, too. Um, I was thinking about, I really like this progression. This is related too, to some of the, the, um, the story you were talking about sort of growing up of Russian and growing up in Russian. I was thinking about the distinction between primary school education, mm-hmm. secondary, and then also um, university education. And it sounds like the trajectory that you're drawing as well in this history is one towards a focus in its development on primary education and primary school secondary school and then the finishing happens in russia as it were sort of going to the university the university level that is there at least in, in the way uh, the opening uh, for instance of the pushkin institute um, as well as the people's friendship school then the university focus has to be different and i'm also wondering about the way in which that's being sort of marketed on the ground as it were um, if this shapes and if this is an important sort of question and distinction for the way in which it's being applied, the way it's being discussed at the Congresses um, and the
9: way. Um, so Thank you so much for this panel. I feel like it's all of the ideas are kind of crossing over in very, very interesting ways. And I, I'm trying to formulate this question um, that I think comes out of what Rachel was saying about the teaching of the word enthusiasm. Um, <laughs> because there's something going on here about Russian as an international language of socialism and socialism as as a language of shared value and experience. And I'm wondering the degree to which those two things map onto each other or don't map onto each other. I think there's something that I see happening, for example, in the World Federation for Deaf when delegations from different areas come together and they're using the same terms or words, but they mean different things. So they're using the word deaf but the American delegation and the Soviet delegation mean different things by debt. Or they use the word entitlement, and they mean different things by that. So I'm wondering the degree to which learning Russian and learning the word enthusiasm actually lets you understand what enthusiasm means. I think this is the post-structural question. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Science and signifiers, but it's, it's intriguing me. So
1: that's kind of the <laughs> um. So you mentioned this sort of rejection of German. Mm-hmm. But but you know, when I look into my archives, all the mm-hmm. almost all the documents that I can find of the actual visits are the plans, you know, this is the, the, the itineraries, they're mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. in German with the Czechoslovak colleagues. So so and this yeah. is like the like nineteen sixty or late late fifties, 1960. Mm-hmm. So so there I, I was wondering mm-hmm. if, if 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 it's possible to you know to know how, and, mm-hmm. and that also is in the name of, you know, of a socialist mm-hmm. collaboration, yes. um, so how, how you know, these parallel um, international languages, um, uh, uh, or these other international <coughs> languages like German, um, which is so important to central Europe, um, uh, still, uh, uh, live on or, or become a tool of this, mm-hmm. this other thing. Yeah, just,
4: uh, I I love this idea Um, that Elidore touched on, this idea of opportunity, of changes, even even quite quite radical changes that are upsetting to me but actually also create opportunities. And I wondered for for all of you, actually particularly for Rachel and for for Elidor, do you know more about who the Russian teachers were? Who were were the people who suddenly decided to kind of take this task on themselves? I'm particularly struck by um, an example from East Germany where I know that there's a load of Russian teachers and then with the change of the wall they suddenly became English teachers. They didn't know any English. They went to some kind of language course and then they started teaching English but kind of being literally a week ahead of the textbook. So it is such a kind of uh, like fluid idea of teaching language. So who decided to do this? Um,
0: and, and, and as a group can they be studying these teachers? Oh, I'll just add one more question then we'll <laughs> go because I, I had this question about um, the teaching of the language and sort of the performative aspect as or the cultural engagement aspect as opposed to the intention was the intention in these programs and maybe it was different in different cases really to teach Russian or was it some kind of an engagement with Russian culture and sort of the ideas of the Soviet model um, so like are we sort of bring, engaging in intentional fallacy to even sort of be judging these programs by how well they mm-hmm. actually taught Russian? Maybe that wasn't the intended purpose at all. So. <coughs> so maybe we'll go reverse order this time. Rachel, would you
8: want answer?
7: Sure, okay, there are a lot of questions, so I'll try and, I won't be adequate, but briefly cover. Um, so Yulia's question, I think it's a great question about the areas where the Sudeten Germans lived I mean, first of all, most of those areas, I mean, it, it is, I think it's really interesting, um, just in general, how this sort of imposition of, of or not imposition, but how this, um, you know, connections with the Soviet Union, Soviet culture, Russian language are being very much used as a kind of antidote to German influence. And in some cases, the rhetoric is, is, is sort of explicit, more about culture, about, um, you know we should watch Soviet films from World War II um, because they show how you know horrible the Germans are, and we are also exposing how horrible our own German population is as, as we as we expel them from the country. Um, so that's very interesting. And, but I think that you know most of the areas that the Sudeten Germans had lived were then quickly repopulated uh, with ethnic Czechs. Um, and so I don't know how much some they, of them were, were the Roma
8: uh-huh. okay. so there are
7: yeah. a lot of Roma um, mm-hmm. moved
8: in. Or
7: yeah. mm-hmm. zones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't really I don't really know about how that plays out in terms of language teaching. Um, in terms of how different levels of primary, secondary, university education, or is one finishing one's education in the Soviet Union. Uh, I think the, the examples that I'm drawing on are a little bit different because people who studied from the developing world at People's Friendship University didn't know any Russian. They were coming from countries, from recently decolonized countries where Russian had never been taught in most cases. Um, so for them, they're learning Russian from scratch as they come to study at university. Uh, there are some uh, you know, Czech philological students who, go to, who are studying Russian who go to MGU or whatever and finish their studies there. Uh, but I don't think the normal trajectory is that you sort of cap off your studies in the Soviet Union. What's sort of interesting is how much this is done in-house in Czechoslovakia and how rare those contacts are with the Soviet Union, although they become more common in the later periods, in the 60s and 70s. Um, does The question of like language and behavior and culture, I think it's sort of folded into yours. I think is really interesting and that's really present in the stalinist period and i do i actually think that's a really good point you make in a way i do think they were much more interested in teaching the sort of ideology the culture than they were in actual linguistic competence especially because in that stalinist period it wasn't clear if you were ever going to actually be able to go to the soviet union or meet a real live soviet person and talk to them Mm -hmm. um so i do think there's probably a shift in the later period but I, i do i think I find it really interesting that idea of like how you can use language to kind of teach behavior, even even less than culture, but you know to teach certain values and and you know to ask the students to like monitor each other, and that's like a way of learning kind of Stalinist behavior at the same time as you're maybe learning a little bit of Russian. <laughs> <laughs> um, your, I mean, your research it's been really helpful also for thinking. I think the anti-German moment is a is a pretty brief one. Um, and it's during the short-lived Third Republic, so from spring of 45 to the coup in 48. Um, and then once Czechoslovakia joins the Eastern Bloc, I mean, East Germany is part of that Eastern Bloc and they have to have friendship with East Germany too. And so I think that kind of overrides mm-hmm. and, and the, they've expelled all the Germans. So that problem has sort of been taken care of. <laughs> and they do start to study German again in school. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure when. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not obligatory, but you know, it is an elective mm-hmm. option. So if that, that's an interesting question. Who are the Russian teachers? Again, I'm looking into this. Most of them are women. Um, and there's actually, in 68, there are these really interesting debates about whether they should continue to have Russian as an obligatory language. Uh, and there, I found this fascinating article from this professional journal for Russian language teachers, which was actually edited by a woman. But she basically says, the reason students don't like Russian is because our teachers are these young women. And they are just doing it for. Gas money, like so they can go out to their country houses on the weekends, and they're not like committed. And English teachers are reading English journals in their spare time, but these women, you know, it's just pocket money, and and they don't, they're not ideologically committed. So. Okay, I think I think that covers it.
2: Um, so we we're, we're really out of time, right?
0: Oh, yeah, we have about five minutes, so we'll we'll, we'll go So I just
2: have, um, so also similar uh, answer to to, um, Jessica's question, the mostly women, uh, the the Russian teachers. uh, In Albania, early on, uh, because there was no other alternative, they actually bring them from Russia. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, so Russian, actually Russians. um, And then they set up these one-year training courses. So you can imagine the quality of the Russian that is being taught in 1956 in a village somewhere. I mean, it's, this is not high level stuff. And, and so, which is why you get the sources in the archives that is like, this is not working, this is not working. They, can, they cannot write a letter to their Soviet pen pals. They, they don't know how to, you know, they're, so it's, there's this constant recounting of how this is not working and uh, in terms of the technical achievement, but interestingly, after the split, they sent people to China to learn foreign languages, learn because Russians? well, because where else are you're going to send them. You cannot send them to the Soviet Union, to enemy land, and so to learn Russian, uh, uh, not many, uh, but you know, but but there is a there is an understanding that you know we still need Russian for technical reasons, right? I mean, in the fifties, they're bringing entire plants from from the Soviet Union. They're bringing entire factories. They bring all of these specifications, all of the technical documentation, all of this stuff is in Russian. They also continue to trade with some some of these Eastern European countries, and that happens in Russian. So there's a technical need for Russian. And in the 50s, they promoted Russian, and this is important, as the language of Lenin. It still is the language of Lenin, even after we've split from Nikita. Nikita doesn't somehow make it now the language of, I mean, it is the language of Lenin. And so they can continue symbolically to say that the language is ours, too, in a way, right? Uh, and, and to kind of disassociate it from this revisionist uh, um, thought. And then the, the only other thing that I was gonna say on this very interesting issue of language acquisition versus the, you know, uh, sort of something bigger. Um, the uh, They also realize that as important as this is, as necessary as it is for development and for, uh, it's language is also very dangerous because the people that get to read Russian after 1960 can read all of the non-Marxist Leninist stuff that is being written everywhere. And so uh, then the similar thing with English, there's a, very, there's a big problem about how many people should learn English uh, because that, that, that gives access, that grants access to things that are considered dangerous and, 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 and uh, uncommunist, uncommunist, uh, which is why they, in the 1970s when it gets really repressive, they ban uh, foreign literature entirely from from Western capitalist countries, and it becomes very in, in certain professions. This goes back to Dora's point about health. I mean, things like engineering and things like architecture, and you know, it becomes really difficult to even keep up uh, because they have these long lists of stuff that is banned uh, from the West, and so then people go back to stuff from the '50s to try and kind of, you know, come at it from. So they're not exactly keeping up with the latest technical. Uh, advancements and so language can be dangerous I mean and 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 on the one hand you need it but on the other hand it's kind of like a double-edged um, uh, thing for 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 a country that kind of seals itself under siege essentially right I mean this is a hostile world the communist world
1: yeah it just perhaps uh, would add that um, it, had I access to the archives I would you know go back and try to follow up what language they keep um i have a feeling that russian never really takes over um, in in scientific language exchange also because because they're it's not isolated right from from the rest of the world so you're engaging with science and practices and people from you know from from all over the world in which you know english and german becomes more and more um important or french um and uh, but there is you know and i think i think uh uh, paying attention to this language competence and how that's built and how that's dealt with is 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 so important when when we look at these um international collaborations or, or especially when they're not the the polit- you know like high politics or, or even you know official socialist something organizations or Camps, or and even in the camps, like as showed, like it's, <laughs> it's, everything happens there. But but you know when, when you when you look at you know people who just come and go and, and talk to each other, it's a it's a, I think it becomes really important to to see the many ways in which which they um, uh, uh, in which it facilitates different languages facilitate, but also hinder um, uh, things. That, and I'm thinking of how Hungarian. Um, Scientists have very diff- have a difficult time publishing in, in Western jur- big medical journals because their English is so bad, and so they they send these uh, uh, and and then you know sometimes they meet with very generous um, uh, people and, and Albert Sabin, who I don't know and he probably never slept um, ever um, but uh, but he he basically proofreads these. Manuscripts um, to to correct the English sends it back and they have to revise and they, you know it's always uh, partly partly about the language that they that they use that their ideas and, and results can you know make it into the, into the world so I think it's um, I think I think uh, you know Russian plays an important part of engaging with a big part of the world but then there's this other part of the world and. And you know, in some cases like Albanian, it's more more isolated than others. But uh, but uh, many m- much of the socialist bloc is you know the, 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 this whole thing doesn't you know live in a bubble. So I think I think that's um, it would be very important to see how languages like like these parallel you know languages that sort of lurk in the background and and ebb and flow in very haphazard ways.
0: I think that maybe if there are more questions, we can hold them and move them into the round table um, after lunch. Um, So let's thank our panelists.